This is Space Time Series 25, Episode 92, for broadcast on the 5th of September 2022. Coming up on Space Time, NASA postpones future Artemis launch attempts for at least a month following another scrub. NASA's James Webb Space Telescope's first image of a distant world. And China's new reusable space planes take to the air and beyond. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA has decided to postpone any future launch attempts for its Artemis 1 mission this month after they were forced to again scrub the flight because of a persistent hydrogen propellant leak. The leak is taking place in the launch pad's cryogenic quick disconnect umbilical fuel supply lines which feed and cycle liquid hydrogen to the SLS rocket. Mission managers detected the leak in a cavity between the ground side and rocket side plates surrounding an 8-inch line used to fill and drain liquid hydrogen from the SLS. Mission managers spent three hours trying to reseal the seal, but they were unsuccessful. This latest issue is different from the liquid hydrogen leak which occurred during last Monday's failed launch attempt. That leak was eventually minimised but the launch was still ultimately scrubbed 40 minutes before liftoff because of an apparent coolant bleed issue with one of the four RS-25 main engines used on the SLS core stage. Mission managers seemed to be unable to chill down one of the four former space shuttle engines. Now, this is normally done by opening bleed valves on the main engines, which feed cryogenic liquid hydrogen through a web of pipes in the engine in order to chill it down. However, the bleed valve on the number 3 engine apparently refused to open properly. Mission Control even tried increasing the pressure in the main tank and closing the valves on the other three main engines. But they apparently still couldn't get enough flow through the ailing engine. It was only later, after the mission had been scrubbed, that technicians were able to trace the problem to a faulty sensor, rather than any problem with the valve itself. So... The liquid hydrogen leak this time was different and a lot bigger than the issue which plagued the previous launch attempt. This time, it appears that an inadvertent command was sent to the cryogenic hydrogen loading system to temporarily raise pressure while the system was still being chilled down. Now, chill down is used to cool down the fuel lines and propulsion system prior to flowing supercold liquid hydrogen into the rocket's tank at minus 253 degrees Celsius. While the rocket remains safe, engineers say it's too early to tell whether the bump in pressurization contributed to the cause of the leaky seal. Technicians are now assessing whether to perform the work to replace the seal at the launch pad 39B where the rocket is sitting and where it can be tested under cryogenic conditions or move the rocket back into the vehicle assembly building. And in the long run, they may not have a choice. You see, to meet requirements by the Eastern Range for certification in the flight termination system, which is currently set at 25 days, NASA will need to roll the rocket and spacecraft back into the vehicle assembly building before the next launch attempt in order to reset the system's batteries. The flight termination system, better known to you and me as a self-destruct mechanism, is required on all rockets in order to protect public safety. Artemis 1's next launch window runs from September the 16th through to October the 4th. 
But NASA may decide to wait until another launch window, running from October the 17th to the 31st. That would avoid conflict with the next crew transfer mission to the International Space Station. SpaceX Crew-5 are slated to launch aboard a Falcon 9 Dragon rocket from the neighbouring launch pad Space Complex 39A on October the 5th. NASA Associate Administrator Jim Free says late October seems a more likely launch window at this stage. You know we're not where we want to be except with the vehicle safe. So we wanted it safe in orbit. It's not there, it's safe on the ground. Um, I'm going to kind of give you the big picture of where we're headed with the launch periods. Um, Charlie Blackwell-Thompson is back in the Launch Control Center with her team, um, working through some of the next steps that the mission management team asked her to do today. Um, so we launch period 25 is definitely off the table. We won't be launching, uh, you know, this period ends on Tuesday. We will not be launching uh, in this launch period. Um, launch period 26 and 27 will really depend on the options that the team comes back with likely on Monday uh, or early Tuesday morning. Uh, one thing I'll point out is we will de-conflict with Crew 5, so there is an overlap with our uh, next launch period and the time frame when Crew 5 wants to go. We, we need to make sure we de-conflict with them, so that will weigh into, uh, into what we do. And then as we get into launch period 27 uh, in the latter part of October, um, we will uh, be looking at a lot of things, our limited life items, um, our stay on the pad durations that we have, and, uh, and of course we're always looking at, at weather uh, as, a, as a general course of action for some of the storm activity that can be out there. Um, I, I'm sure there's going to be a question of are we confident Right, I actually love that question because it's like, are you confident you were going to get out of bed this morning? Um, we're, we're, we don't go into these tests lightly, right? We, we don't just say, hey, we think, we hope this is going to work. Um, the confident, confidence to do another launch attempt today was born out of the fact that uh, we understood the hydrogen leaks that we had on, on Monday. Those are different than the leak that we had today. Um, in, in terms of scale, one was in the, the same place, but today was a different signature. Um, and we, we understood the engine issue. So we were confident coming into today, but as the administrator said, we're not going to launch till we're ready, which means we're going to step through these things. Um, there's a lot of conjecture already. Uh, I, I can assure you, I don't know how many people are in that MMT room today, Mike, but I don't know, 100, 100 plus folks, most of them engineers, everybody already thinking about what is the problem. And frankly, that's what happens on the loops when we're, um, when we're talking about these things. Folks are giving options. Uh, the anomaly loops are, are really active, especially on this one today, from, from the time we first saw the signature all the way until Charlie made the right decision, which was to scrub. So our confidence comes through what we're going to learn in this. Uh, when we're ready to go back out there, we'll go back out there and try for another uh, launch. I'll, I'll say this, obviously, we've talked about this mission being risky, but we're going to take the risks that make sense. Um, the risk that we know that have already pushed the vehicle and the system as far as it will uh, when we launch and, uh, and be ready to go at that time. More than 400,000 people have gathered along the Space Coast in Florida to witness the historic launch. 
When it does fly, the 98-metre-tall Artemis I SLS, or Space Launch System, the most powerful rocket ever built, will be the first human-capable spacecraft to travel to the Moon in over 50 years. That's half a century. The last being the manned Apollo 17 mission to the lunar surface, which lifted off on December 7, 1972, from the neighbouring launch pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says while failure to launch is disappointing, the agency simply isn't prepared to launch until everyone's sure that everything on the $4.5 billion rocket is performing nominally. We'll go when it's ready. Uh, we don't uh, go until then, and especially now on a test flight, because we're going to stress this and test it uh, and test that heat shield uh, and make sure it's right before we put four humans up on the top of it. Uh, so this is part of the space business. I I've told you before, you know, it's, it's something I'm accustomed to on my flight which was Hoot Gibson and Charlie uh, Bolden's flight way, way, way back, uh, we scrubbed four times. Mm -hmm. We were delayed over the better part of a month, but the fifth try was an almost flawless six-day mission. So um, this is part of our space program. Be ready for the scrubs. Space is hard indeed. Um, the question now on everybody's mind is going to be, when will we have another launch attempt? Any thoughts on that? Well, the mission management team is meeting this afternoon. They're going to look at it. They're going to see, is there still a possibility now, or are they going to have to roll back into the vehicle assembly building? If they decide that's the case, then it'll be an October launch. And uh, October, I would say, although the window opens in early, I suspect it'll be more like the middle. Because remember, the first week of October, we've got another crew. Mm -hmm. It's an international crew, two international participants on the crew of four that are going to the International Space Station. That's right. SpaceX's uh, Crew-5, NASA and SpaceX's Crew-5 mission scheduled for early uh, October. Um, you mentioned the MMT, of course, the mission management team. They're going to meet this afternoon, and then hopefully we'll have a press conference after that. Um, I've been watching this launch team for the past two weeks now and just impressed at how focused and how hard they work. Any thoughts you want to share? with them about uh, the effort they put in so far? I'm very proud of the launch team. Uh, they do it right. They do it by the book. Uh, they do it very professionally. And that's why we have had this extraordinary success that we've had over the years. Uh, sometimes we make mistakes, but we try to minimize those because these are human being li uh, lives on the top of that rocket. And I can tell you, when you strap into that rocket, you are very grateful that you've got a, a launch team like this uh, that knows what they're doing and they're not going to let you go until it's time. This is space time. Still to come. NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope takes its first ever direct image of a planet beyond our solar system, and China's new reusable space planes take to the air and beyond. All that and more still to come on Space Time.
NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope has taken its first ever image of a planet beyond our solar system. The young exoplanet, called HIP 65426b, is a gas giant between 6 and 12 times the mass of Jupiter and around 15 to 20 million years old. Just a newborn compared to the 4.6 billion year age of the Earth. The planet, located some 385 light years from Earth, is about 100 times further away from its host star than what the Earth is from the Sun, making it easy for James Webb to separate the planet from the star. The image was seen through four different James Webb light filters. One of the study's authors, Sasha Hinckley from the University of Exeter, says the image was a transformational moment, not only for James Webb, but also for astronomy generally. The planet was first discovered back in 2017 using the Sphere instrument on the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in Chile, taking images of it using short infrared wavelengths of light. Webb's view at much longer infrared wavelengths reveals new details which ground-based telescopes would not be able to detect because of the intrinsic infrared glow of Earth's atmosphere. James Webb's near-infrared camera and mid-infrared instrument are both equipped with coronagraphs, which are sets of tiny masks that block out starlight, enabling James Webb to take direct images of exoplanets. NASA's Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, slated for launch later this decade, will demonstrate an even more advanced coronagraph. Hinckley says it was impressive to see how well the James Webb's coronagraphs work to suppress the light coming from the host star. Taking direct images of exoplanets is always challenging because stars are so much brighter than their planets. In fact, this planet is more than 10,000 times fainter than its host star in near-infrared and a few thousand times fainter even in the mid-infrared range. In each filtered image, the exoplanet appears as a slightly differently shaped blob of light. That's because of the particular characteristics of James Webb's optical system and how it translates light through different optics. Of course, this is not the first direct image of an exoplanet ever taken from space. James Webb's predecessor, the Hubble Space Telescope, has captured direct exoplanet images before. But this new image by James Webb points the way forward for exoplanetary exploration in the future. This is space time. Still to come, China's reusable space planes take to the air and beyond, and later in the science report, a new study has confirmed that major sea level rise due to global warming can now not be stopped. All that and more still to come on Space Time. China has completed a test flight of what Beijing describes as a reusable suborbital space plane. Beijing says the space plane launched vertically under its own power from the Zhuquan Satellite Launch Center in northwestern China's Gobi Desert. After completing a pre-planned suborbital flight, the spacecraft made a conventional landing on the runway at the Alexa Wright Banner Airport in the Inner Mongolian Autonomous Region. No details about the perigee altitude or mission duration were released. This mission was the second flight for this spacecraft, the first taking place over the same course in July last year. It was also the second launch of an experimental reusable spacecraft from Xiquan in the past month. A few weeks ago, Beijing reported the launch of another reusable spacecraft, which apparently is still in orbit. However, little is known about either vehicle or the missions they undertook, 
and there are only artists' impressions available to go on. One version shows what appears to be a simplified Boeing X-37B space shuttle with cut-off delta wings and a single vertical tail fin together with deployable solar arrays emerging from a small payload bay. Another version has two tail fins in a V formation, while a third uses small canard wings and appears to be launched by a carrier rocket. Beijing's previously described its reusable space plane projects as being developed to carry out space tourism, astronaut transport services to space stations, satellite deployment, cargo transportation, and emergency space rescue operations. Intelsat has lost control of one of its satellites after it was apparently disabled by space weather. The Galaxy 15 telecommunications satellite was hit by a Category G3 geomagnetic storm on August the 19th. That apparently knocked out onboard electronics needed to communicate with the satellite. The spacecraft is otherwise operating nominally, still Earth-pointing and with all its payloads operating. Galaxy 15 was built by Orbital Sciences and launched into geostationary orbit in 2005 with a footprint covering the Americas. Category G3 geomagnetic storms usually are not powerful enough to damage spacecraft electronics, but this one apparently hit just the right way. It also produced some spectacular auroral activity at higher latitudes. Geomagnetic storms can also disrupt radio communications and terrestrial power grids. And this year has seen an upsurge in geomagnetic storm activity as the sun moves into a new solar cycle. And some space weather experts are forecasting that the current solar cycle could be one of the strongest in recorded history. We'll keep you informed. This is Space Time. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that it's now inevitable that the Greenland ice cap will continue melting and that will result in a major sea level rise of at least 27 centimetres which can now no longer be stopped regardless of what climate change action is now taken. The sobering findings reported in the journal Nature Climate Change are based on satellite measurements of ice losses from Greenland and the shape of the ice cap between the years 2000 and 2019. But the 27-centimetre estimate is a minimum only because it only accounts for global heating so far and can't include the full extent of margin melting. Mountain glaciers are already on course to lose between a third and half of their water ice reserves. And the West Antarctic ice sheet has now also passed the point of no return where major ice losses are inevitable. Combined, these alone could mean a rise of 78 centimetres in sea level height. But the real fear now is the possible collapse of the colossal East Antarctic ice sheet. And that would lead to a 52 metre rise in sea levels were it all to melt. The remains of what could be the largest dinosaur ever to be found in Europe is slowly being uncovered in a backyard in Pombal, a city in central Portugal. Paleontologists from the University of Lisbon say the fossils are part of a brachiosauroid seropod dinosaur that was around 25 metres long and stood some 12 metres high. Seropods are those herbivorous quadrupedal dinosaurs with elephant-like bodies and legs, a long neck and small head at one end and a long tail at the other similar to Fred Flintstone's pet dinosaur, Dino. 
Brachiosauroids lived during the Upper Jurassic and Lower Cretaceous periods around 160 to 100 million years ago. Well, with things looking ever grimmer in both the Ukraine and South China Seas, a new study says Australia may be one of the best places on the planet to hang out if thermonuclear war breaks out. A report of the journal Nature claims that if a nuclear war happens, it would result in famine in large parts of the world. The study found that even a small regional nuclear war between, say, India and Pakistan would still produce more than 5 teragrams, that's 5 trillion grams of soot, and that would cause mass food shortages in almost all countries, killing around 2 billion people. If the war was between, say, the United States and Russia, that would produce around 150 teragrams of soot, sending the world into a nuclear winter and resulting in famine-related deaths of up to 5 billion people. The study found that Australia might be one of the best places in the world to hang out if nuclear war broke out, as the nation's wheat production is predicted to be less affected, and wheat makes up half of human calorie intake. The 2021 Australian census has shown a continuing drop in religious beliefs, with some 38.9% of people now saying they have no religious beliefs. That's up almost 10 percentage points from the previous census five years earlier. For the first time, fewer than half of all Australians identified as being Christian, although Christianity remains the nation's most common religion, with 43.9% of the population so declared. However, that's still a dramatic drop from the 90% figure back in the 1966 census. At 3.2%, Islam is now the fastest-growing religion in Australia, followed by Hinduism at 2.7%. Australia continues to be a nation of immigrants, with almost half of the population, 48.2%, being either first or second generation migrants, having at least one parent born overseas. That compares to 41.1% 30 years ago. Of the 27.6% of Australians who were born overseas, the most common country of birth is still Mother England, with India now overtaking China and New Zealand to move into second place. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says the census continues to provide a useful snapshot of the Australian community. Yeah, the interesting thing is that always, and uh, the non-religion has been rising every time a census has been done, to the extent that the latest figures done by the 2021 census show that 38.9, so you may say 39% of people say no religion. In the past, the terms used were often a bit... Uh, divisive. They might have used atheist, but now that's just saying no religion and it's now coming on the top of the option list rather than down the bottom as an afterthought. That might be an indication as to why it's, if people are actually now saying it. They might have already always believed it. But, uh, you know, from in 2016, which is just the previous census, which is only five years before, it was 30.1. So it's gone up by about 9%, which is a huge growth period of just five years. So it's 5% more people being confident enough to say it. I still tell them I'm a Jedi Knight. That, that's dropped, unfortunately. Yes, I've, I've seen this, yes. <laughs> and the Pastafarians have dropped as well. Um, but, but because the census was saying, don't use silly titles, they were almost yeah, going to send someone around to see you if you called yourself a Jedi or something. So people might have thought, oh, yeah, okay, perhaps Star Wars well, it is... It would have to be a man in black, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would be. Perhaps, yeah, the last three Star Wars films were pretty rubbish. Perhaps the, the impetus has, has dropped off as well. But, I mean, the people who quote Christianity as a religion is 43.9. So it's really only, that's only sort of 
5% more than the no religion. But of course, Christianity in, nine, in 2011, which is just 10 years before this, it was 61. Yes. And in 1971, if you can go back that far, it was 86. So people who say they are Christians have dropped dramatically. It might also be an aspect of population growth. But the, the important thing is that when they say Christianity 43.9, you have to look at how it's broken down amongst the various Christian religions, and they don't agree with each other. So lumping them under one title is lumping coalition members in the politics under one title as well, right? Yeah, that there are a lot of different about Islam as well. With the... you can say, but it is then. Yeah, the, 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 the Sunni and the and the Shia and the Sufis. Yes, at least three, right, and probably a lot more. But of that forty-three point nine, twenty percent of Australians are listed as Catholic. Eighteen as Protestant, which includes all the Anglican dropping dramatically, Pentecostal, Charismatic churches increasing rapidly. So you know, twenty percent for Catholics, eighteen for Protestants, and the next one, the next sect of Christianity is Orthodox, which is Greek and Russian, etc. Is two. So those three go towards making up the uh, 43.9. All other religions are less than 5%. You know, Islam, Jewish, Hindu, etc. small numbers. So in a way, no religion is more than any one religion. I would say pretty soon, probably in the next census, no religion will have passed all of Christianity, which is a major change from what Australia, if you think about it, when, you know, as you will recall what it was like in the early 1900s, um, <laughs> that yeah, we were almost totally Christian country. So that has dramatically changed over the years. It's an interesting situation, interesting growth. Part of it is people being more confident to say, from my point of view, people being more confident to say they have no religion and then people, you know, that they've always had no religion but they're just now saying it rather than just saying, oh, mum and dad told me to be an Anglican therefore I'm an Anglican. So there is a change of attitude as much of a change of belief. But the established older religions are dropping dramatically. The newer Christian religions are growing but from a small base and the um, smaller religions the perhaps you know non-Western European religions are growing slightly, primarily through migration. But the one that's growing fastest, I reckon, is still um, no religion. Going up from 30 to 39 is a, in five years is a major jump. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. That's the show for now. Space Time is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. Space Time's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. 
And Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.